0: The lone gunman. 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 The lone gunman.
1: Stand uh, not so long before the killing of President Kenning Kennedy in Dallas. You have been arrested in Dallas or interrogated? Yes, I uh, I had hauled a load of arms in a trailer from Los Angeles uh, en route to Miami, Florida, or en route to the Keys, so we could make our raids into Cuba. And we stopped off in Dallas and deposited these uh, arms in a home in the Dallas area. And that was Mr. Logue's home? Uh, I'll say that uh, that I uh, deposited the the arms in a home in, in in the Dallas area. Yes. You were actually imprisoned? Yes. For how long? Uh, I was in uh, jail, I think it was for two days. How did you get out? Mr. Logue bailed me out for $5,000. Now, why would he do that? Well, number one, he had some things of mine out at his house. Oh, yes. And uh, uh, he was a friend of mine, and uh, he wanted me out of the area. Are you still in contact with Mr. Lowe? No, I'm not. Why would that not be? Because I'm not in contact with anybody from Texas. (laughs) You uh, give the impression that you wouldn't like to go to Texas at this point. Well, if I wanted to commit suicide, uh, I would probably go to Dallas, Texas. Can you tell us about your meeting in Mr. Logue's office in Dallas about soliciting funds for Cuba? <clears throat> Pardon me. Yes, we uh, I was in the office. There was uh, five other gentlemen along with Mr. Logan and myself that was in the office. And we were talking about donating $2,000 apiece towards a $20,000 fund so that we could form a government in exile, a Cuban government in exile, and for pulling raids in Cuba. And one of the gentlemen that was there that was in the trucking business stated that rather than donate $2,000 for the raids into Cuba and for forming a government uh, in exile, he would rather donate to a $50,000 fund and have uh, Kennedy's head blowed off.
2: What is up, everybody, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 80 of the Lone Gunman Podcast. The doctor is in. Um, I played you that little bit from Lauren Hall at the beginning of the show to illustrate to you (laughs) a little bit about what kind of a guy this this really was and what they were up to um, as far as running guns and other things uh, from the West Coast through Dallas, um, to eventually make their way to Cuba. Um, And also, to illustrate that it's not out of the realm of possibility that powerful people wanted Kennedy dead. Now, this piggybacks a little bit off of uh, what Doug was talking about this week on the Dallas action, and if you haven't listened to it yet, uh, head over there and listen to his newest show with Ted Rubenstein, uh, where they talk about uh, the new book that's out, uh, General Walker and the Killing of President Kennedy uh, by Jeffrey Caulfield. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today um, and touch on some things that we haven't previously touched on. Um, I touched on it a little bit a couple weeks ago with Carmine, um, but we're going to go a little bit more in depth to it today. To give you a little bit more of an understanding, and I've illustrated it before on this very show. Uh, it was reiterated uh, this week on Doug's show um, by Ted, and uh, you know Jack Ruby was scared to death um, to stay in Dallas, and the reason why is because these crazy right wingers and and people like in the John Birch Society. That's what he was afraid of. That's what he tried to warn uh, Earl Warren about. And in his Warren Commission testimony, he blatantly stated that much. Um, It was because of the extreme right-wingers. So, you know, we have Jack Ruby, like I said, the uh, the early morning after the assassination, going out and taking pictures of billboards uh, that that these extreme right wingers had put up, you know, in Peter Warren and, and the such, and, uh, looking up the, uh, PO boxes, going to the post office, uh, these extreme right wing groups and taking pictures of those and maybe staking them out, see if anybody showed up, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, we have the interesting thing, uh, which they brought out in, in the book, you know, that, that, uh, that Walker had predicted that Jack, uh, that Jack Ruby was going to leave the hospital in a box, um, and they needed to get to him before he started talking. Because um, I think they at that point they they maybe knew he had cancer, and that he was going to die soon, and maybe he w- was was going to talk before he uh, passed away. Um, I say that to say this, you know, looking deeper into the extreme right wingers. You know, we got Joseph Miltier, okay, who's, who's very deeply embedded in the, in the, in the uh, KKK and the National States Rights Party. They're very, uh, you know, anti, uh, or they're very, they're very into segregation, um, you know, keeping the blacks and whites separate, um, you know, states rights versus the federal government, which is a big deal, um, very anti-communist, anti-gay. You name it. These guys are anti, you know, everything, um, you know, and you mix some of these guys with with people like the John Birch Society and uh, other big groups at the time back then, these extreme right-wing groups, and you got a mess. Um, because, I mean, you can't deny that Joseph Miltier had information, okay, you know, that sounded a hell of a lot like what happened in Dallas. Okay. You know, he's going to be shot from, from a, an upper, you know, from a high rise or whatever, whatever it was, he said, um, he'll be shot from a tall building and somebody would be arrested within, within a couple hours to take the blame. And damn if it didn't happen. Okay. You know, and and these are the kind of facts that you just can't pull out of thin air. And, you know, even in that one Altman's photograph, it's it's been speculated speculated by many uh, that Joseph Miltier is in, it, you know, is in Dealey Plaza. You know, some people dispute that, but to me, it looks a hell of a lot like him. And uh, I know that's not conclusive evidence of anything, but um, we know that Miltier was supposedly in Dallas on business at that time so it's not out of the realm of possibility that possibly he might have had some information that something was going to go down something might have, something was going to happen and he wanted to be there to watch you know and what you don't see a lot of in the footage from uh, president kennedy's motorcade are are the haters okay you see a lot of these people that, that love president kennedy they're thrilled to see him come to Dallas and, and to see his wife and, you know, how handsome he is and how pretty she is. And they're just thrilled to death that that, that that they decided to come to Dallas. But what you don't see, and which there are a lot of that I've happened to find recently, are <laughs> people that are very, very opposed to President Kennedy. You know, people waving the rebel flag. Um... Neo-Nazis, you know, the extreme right-wing groups, guys with tape over their mouth holding billboards up in Dealey Plaza. Okay? So, you know, the sentiment was there. You know, the ads were in the paper. You know, Kennedy wanted for treason. They viewed him as soft on communism. And the reason I called this episode The Doctor Is In is because we're going to be looking today at a fellow... Uh, By the name of Dr. Stanley Drennan. And he kind of ties in, and I mentioned him before, but I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read you um, the FBI um, report on Drennan. I just need to pull it up here real quick. And we get to banging it out. Okay. And this was from 41863. April 18th, 1963, one week exactly after General Walker was shot at. Okay, and this is to Director Hoover from SAC Los Angeles, Dr. Stanley Drennan, IS-Cuba. And then there's something redacted, uh, who has furnished reliable information in the past to Los Angeles, advised as Dr. Stanley Drennan, M.D., with offices at 3550 West 8th Street, Los Angeles, advised him April 17 last that the organization, in quotes, was going to have a discussion that would take place at Poor Richard's Bookshop, which is owned and operated by F.X. Renuzzi. Drennan stated they would discuss plans to assassinate President Kennedy, Attorney General Kennedy, and some unidentified members of Congress. Stated, uh, would have individual do it who is not a member of the John Birch Society and thereby would be no reflection on the group. Drennan stated this action is necessary in view of the Pope's position and the administration's position against continuing the fight against communism in favor of coexistence and work through United Nations. Drennan has hatred for the administration and former President Eisenhower and other American leaders not identified. He supports General Walker... And current Cuban Raiders. Drennan engaged in collecting materials, drugs, clothing to be shipped to Cuban Raiders, place unknown. Uh, So, you know, they knew about this guy, Stanley Drennan. They knew about these extreme right wingers. They have a clear threat, okay, from this guy. Now, Stanley Drennan was a doctor uh, uh, in California back then who was who was a big, big into the John Birch Society, uh, extreme right-winger to the max, okay, this guy had access to funds, like I said, he was a doctor, he could get medicine, Um, and what we just heard at the beginning of the show from Lauren Hall, okay, it seems quite clear to me that, you know, this is the guy that Lauren Hall was bringing stuff from California, through Dallas, eventually to Florida, to Cuba. Okay? Now, when you're looking at at General Walker, and like I've told you before, it doesn't matter whether Oswald shot at him or not. It really doesn't matter. If he did or he didn't, it doesn't matter. What matters is if General Walker thought that he did, or if General Walker was told that he did. Okay? Because I would say within, within a week or so, you know Walker was notified by somebody um, you know that they, that they had picked up a couple people uh, and related to, to, to the shooting of his house. and under the orders of the Attorney General Robert Kennedy, they, they turned them loose. And these individuals were uh, Lee Oswald and Jack Ruby. So, whether or not Oswald actually is the one that shot at General Walker, um, it doesn't matter. What matters is if General Walker thought that they did. What matters is if General Walker thought that Bobby Kennedy had these guys turned loose. Okay, and he already hated the Kennedys because they had him locked up in a mental institution. You know, he felt that they were soft on communism and that they were a threat to national security. You know, and, and when you have big, powerful people like ex-major generals, um, very influential people in society with money-we're talking about doctors, we're talking about people of power like Joseph Miltier. Um, you know, he had money, these were businessmen um, who, who could travel, who could invest in things who could get the ball rolling for things to happen. Now, there are a couple people that enter into the narrative um, throughout what we're going to be talking about here today. And, you know, all right, Stanley Drennan, okay, he was, he was a close associate of William Gale, and he was a subpoenaed along with Clint Wheat by Jim Garrison, okay, Now, according to Lauren Hall, Drennan attended a meeting at the home of the California Ku Klux Klan leader, Clint Wheat, along with Gene Bradley, that's Eugene Bradley, uh, and Colonel Gale. Moreover, a warrant commission document indicates that Drennan tried to recruit Captain Robert Kenneth Brown to get rid of President Kennedy. Now, Captain Brown, okay, he's, uh, he's from the school brigade in Fort Benning, Georgia. Um, He advised that he'd been active in Cuban matters for several years during the spring of 63 in connection with the anti-Castro activity. He was in contact with the States Rights Party in Los Angeles, California. In this connection, he contacted Dr. Stanley Drennan in North Hollywood, California, who was active in the National States Rights Party. Brown stated that once, while a guest in Drennan's home, Drennan stated in general conversation that he could not do it, but what the organization needed was a group of young men to get rid of Kennedy the cabinet, and all members of the Americans for Democratic Action, and maybe 10,000 other people. <laughs> okay, I mean, this guy had big ambitions. Um, Brown stated that he considered the remark as being crackpot. However, as Drennan continued the conversation, he gained the impression that Drennan may have been prepositioning him on the matter. The FBI reportedly interviewed Drennan on June 14th regarding this conversation. Uh, Drennan an admitted meeting with the Secret Service who accused him three different times of threatening the president and warned him he could be put away on mental charges. Interestingly enough, Brown had furnished information to the FBI in 65 or 66 of talk from right-wing militants of assassinating Miami District Attorney Richard Gerstein because he was Jewish. Geerstein was a principal in the Miami police investigation of Joseph Miltier. Okay? So here you have this... I don't know this 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 network of 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 people now Brown and we'll, we'll get into more of him in a minute. He's just, just remember that name okay. Um. So these threat these threats these FBI threats were passed on to the Secret Service, who went to Drennan who basically gave him a stern talking to. Now, don't you be making threats against the president, or we're going to have you locked away in a mental institution. And that's all they did to him. There was no follow-up. There was no follow-up whatsoever from the Secret Service or the FBI. You know, when the Secret Service, uh, or the FBI looked at it after the assassination, they concluded that, that Drennan wasn't involved, and there was no reason to look any further here. Okay. Now, Let me find this other one. Now, Drennan wrote a letter to Dean Clarence Mannion. And now I'm reading to you directly from Jeffrey Caulfield's new book, General Walker and the Murder of President Kennedy. Uh, A prominent member of the John Birch Society on July 20th, 1963, where Drennan professed his outrage over the Secret Service's interrogation of him. Drennan wrote on Saturday, June 10th, John F. Kennedy visited Los Angeles speaking at the Palladium at 9.30 a.m. Two of my acquaintances were awakened by the Treasury Department's Secret Service agents. I was only two miles from where the President was riding in an open convertible sitting high in the back of the seat. The climax of the Treasury agents' questioning was why this writer, Stanley Drennan, was plotting the assassination of Mr. Kennedy. Drennan reported in the letter that a friend of his was also interviewed by the Secret Service on the matter. Drennan claimed that the Secret Service told him that anyone who contemplated violence would be considered mentally unbalanced and would end up in an institution. Drennan told the Secret Service agents, The administration was not following our constitution and was apparently plunging us into a one-world chaos, and I intended in my small way to double and redouble my efforts to see such politicians defeated and relieved of governmental responsibilities. Now, Drennan wrote to General Walker on January 15, 1962, and told him that he had attended his January 11, sixty-two, sports arena speech. He told Walker, We need you as our spokesperson and our standard bearer, and with a wave of patriotic Americanism sweeping the country, it may be possible. In fact, I feel it is possible. We can reverse the stampede toward our own burial. Okay. Now, George King Jr., another associate of William Gale, was a member of the Christian Defense League, American Nazi Party, and John Birch Society. He was arrested after he was overheard discussing the possibility of assassinating the president, according to August 63 FBI and Secret Service reports. King was also a member of Gale's California Rangers. Okay. Now, there's another guy, uh, Woody Kearns. Was, uh, was was likely cryptically referring to Drennan in a 65 letter to Joseph Miltier when he mentioned the doctor on the West Coast. The doctor, like Kearns, according to the letter, felt his phone calls were being monitored. And uh, he says, The Drennan affair is yet another instance where Garrison's professed investigation into CIA or government intelligence conspiracy was in reality a probe into the radical right wing connected to the National States Rights Party, the John Birch Society, and the Ku Klux Klan among other extremist groups. Drennan's spring 1963 threat to kill the president, his cabinet, and many others, sounded similar to the broad-based plot discussed at the April 63 Congress of Freedom meeting in New Orleans, which targeted members of government and industry. It was also similar to the plot discussed by William Potter Gale and Wesley Swift, Joseph Miltier's California colleagues. Okay. Um... <clears throat> so, when it comes back to Jim Garrison and his investigation, you know, he, he didn't go after the mafia and he didn't go after these extreme right wingers. Okay, he, he, he basically based his, his, his claims from Perry Russo, a right wing friend of David Ferry. While there's plausible evidence that Shaw knew Oswald, there's no evidence he was involved in the assassination conspiracy. The conspirators may have used Shaw as a scapegoat since the investigation of Shaw revealed no direct ties to the Bannister operation. The Garrison case, in reality, was an excursion into the world of the New Orleans radical right, and Garrison knew it. Okay, now, he also states in here, David Ferry, at the onset of Garrison's investigation, told him prominent members of the far right, including H.L. Hunt, General Walker, Billy James Hargis, and Carl McIntyre, were involved in the assassination. Garrison's purported former CIA employee suspects, Gordon Neville and Ed Butler, as well as the California suspects, were nothing more than right-wing extremists tied to one or more of the far-right organizations of the John Birch Society, the Ku Klux Klan, the Minutemen, the National States Rights Party, and the Citizens Council. Okay? Now, we also know that Guy Bannister was a huge anti-communist, that he, he participated, he had ties to the Minutemen and the John Birch Society. And he likely knew uh, a lot of these people that we're talking about here, including General Walker. Um, now, here's an interesting tidbit from the book. Um, the business card of attorney George W. Gill, Jr., who is the son of G. Ray Gill Sr., who was also an attorney, was found in Joseph Miltier's home by HSCA staff. The office address is the same as his father's was in 1963 because the card bears a post office zip code rather than a zone. The U.S. Post Office switched from zones to zip codes in July 63. Gill Jr.'s card can then be dated to after July 63. After Miltier dropped in on Leander Perez's office in October 63, just prior to the Constitution Party meeting, he met two young lawyers who were not named in any of the documents the author found. One may have been George W. Gill, Jr., who worked out of his father's office, as did David Ferry. Okay? Uh, why is that important? Okay? Now, Miltier wrote to his buddy, Woody Kearns, on October the 3rd, 1963, and described his New Orleans meeting. I also saw a couple of young lawyers, and maybe one of them will attend our meeting. G. Ray Gill Sr. was an attorney for both David Ferry and Carlos Marcello. Gill Sr. had represented Marcello since he had been subpoenaed to testify before the key committee that was investigating organized crime in 1951. Gill's office had been located in the Balter building at the time. Gill was also a friend of Guy Bannister. Both Bannister and Gill flew to Florida to testify on behalf of David Ferry in his dismissal dismissal hearings from Eastern Airlines. Okay. Guy Bannister and G. Ray Gill flew to Florida to testify on behalf of David Ferry in his dismissal dismissal from hearings uh, from Eastern Airlines. Now, by 1963, Gill Jr. had been practicing law for over 10 years. A graduate of Louisiana State University, he had practiced in both state and federal courts and about every conceivable civil litigation on the docket. And after Bannister employee CIA Jack Martin told the press just after the assassination that David Ferry was associated with Lee Harvey Oswald, Gill Sr. learned of the matter. Now, Gill Sr. was questioned by the FBI and told them that he had known Ferry since 61 when he represented him in a criminal matter in Jefferson Parish and again in a grievance against Eastern Airlines following his dismissal from the company. Afterward, Ferry worked for Gill Sr. as an investigator and an all around handyman. Gill Sr. denied knowing of a relationship between Ferry and Oswald. Uh, Gill Sr. related that a TV station had contacted him on November 23rd and told him of the allegation made by Jack Martin of the possible involvement. A fairy in the assassination. Now, why is this important? It's important for a number of reasons. Okay, now G. Ray Gill, um, and I've talked about it on this show over and over and over again about Thomas Beckham being an important Witness that nobody seems to want to listen to. Okay. Granted, he did lie at the garrison trial. Okay. But for the HSCA, he came clean. And the investigators, Delsa and these guys, weren't able to follow up on his claims because they weren't, they didn't let them. They were blocked from investigating Beckham's claims. Now, Thomas Beckham, the former teenage singer who ran errands for Guy Bannister uh, voluntarily without subpoena or legal counsel, testified before the HSC on May 24, 78. Among other things, he told the committee he had attended a meeting at the Algiers section of, of New Orleans with Sergio Arcacha Smith and an individual whose name he f- pronounced phonetically as Charlie Marulo, who's obviously Carlos Marcelo. Also in attendance were Lucius Rebel, David Ferry, g ray gill senior uh, beckham testified that they were talked about how president kennedy ought to be killed because of the bay of pigs fiasco uh, david ferry took beckham to gill's office where beckham was asked by gill to go to dallas and deliver a package of photos of streets and pictures taken from a window beckham took the package to dallas and gave it to a man he had seen before in new orleans whom he knew as lawrence howard who, or i'm sorry whom he only knew as howard The delivery took place one or two weeks before the assassination. G. Ray Gill died in 1972, but on October 20th, 1977, HSC investigators interviewed his son, George W. Gill Jr., about his father's activity. Gill Jr. told them that the Marcello files were protected by attorney-client privilege and that David Ferry had took the files with him when he was fired in 1964. okay. Now, this brings us back to Daily Plaza. Um, there was another person that had offices in the same building as G. Ray Gill. And that was Eugene Hale Brading. Okay. A guy from the West Coast. Um, not sure what his ties are. He's definitely right wing. Don't know if he has CIA ties or not. Um. and this author also thinks Miltier was in Dealey Plaza um, because Eugene Hale Brading who also went by the name Jim Braden, uh, was in Dealey Plaza and after the shooting walked to the Dow Tech's building adjacent to the Texas School Book Depository there an elevator operator noticed Brading acting suspiciously and called law enforcement Brading was taken into custody by the Sheriff's Department Throughout his questioning and detention, Brading lied and represented himself as Jim Braden. He even had ID to match. Okay? So, you know, it's just, it's crazy. It, it just keeps going on and on. Um, now, there's another guy we need to talk about. Okay? Joseph Miltier was associated with four individuals who were associates of Guy Bannister in New Orleans. They were George Soul, Leander Perez, G.W. Gill Jr., and Ray Lehart. Uh, these associations and the fact that Bannister and Miltier both, both attended the Congress of Freedom meeting in April of '63. Uh, there's April '63 again. Lend credibility to the allegations of two witnesses who claimed they saw Bannister and Miltier together. Willie Somerset, the informant uh, that, that outed Miltier, learned from Miltier that Leander Perez was a financial backer of the Kennedy assassination. That allegation and the evidence that Perez and Bannister were close associates, the fact that Bannister was seen by multiple witnesses with Lee Harvey Oswald, the fact that Bannister associated with a number of Miltier's colleagues in New Orleans and the fact that Miltier knew of the assassination in advance and was in Dealey Plaza at the time it occurred is evidence of conspiracy in the assassination of President Kennedy. The conspiracy involved the radical right and other forces dedicated to preserving the Southern Institution of Segregation. Uh, Miltier's relationship with friends such as Leander Perez and Roy Harris, national leaders in the movement to preserve segregation, as well as with General Walker, attest to Miltier's high position in the national far-right. Now, Roy Harris was the genius behind the creation of the Highlander poster entitled Martin Luther King at Communist Training School. After the Brown decision, the Southern segregationist strategy was to tie the integration movement to communism and the Red Scare. So, here's what they're trying to do here. They're trying to make segregation, um, or integration, look just as bad as communism. Okay, back then. A major problem with the strategy was the lack of any significant involvement in communism in the movement. To remedy that, the segregationists fabricated evidence of communist involvement. Harris's operative, Ed Friend, collaborated with Abner Barry of the Communist Party, whom no one at the Highlander knew, and inserted himself into the photo with Dr. King, establishing King's guilt by association. Ex-communists and false-communists were recruited by the state and in congressional inquisitions to falsely accuse people in the integration movement of being communists. As we shall see, that is precisely where Lee Harvey Oswald fits into the scheme. The evidence presented favors Oswald as the person that Hubert Badeau, Bannister's close colleague, groomed in 1956 to be like Herbert Philbrick and infiltrate leftist groups. Bannister and his colleagues Bedreau, Ed Butler, Willie Reynak, and Louis P. Davis all engaged in infiltrating leftist groups. You might recognize that name, Ed Butler. Bannister and Badeau joined Senator James O. Eastland in 1956 uh, at these hearings that determined there was a Soviet influence behind the Civil Rights Movement, all in the same year that Oswald began to act like a communist. And three years before he left for the Soviet Union, Bannister, Badeau, and Leander Perez testified in the state hearings on subversion and racial unrest in 1957 and stated that the communists were behind the integration movement. Badeau also had a working relationship with the House Committee on Un-American Activities in 1958, another anti-subversion body. Um, the allegation suggested that Badeau fed Garrison misinformation to tie the assassination to the CIA as further evidence of the far-right's efforts to divert attention from the far-right to the CIA. Ravillo Oliver, Miltier's colleague, was the first from the radical right to blame the CIA for the assassination in his testimony before the Warren Commission in 1964. Furthermore, Bedeau's claim to garrison at the training camps north of Lake Pontchartrain were run by the CIA, served to deflect attention from the far right, primarily the John Birch Society and Minutemen elements at the camp. And to tie this all together a little bit, You know, it's, according to Greg Parker, the Civil Air Patrol headquarters were moved uh, to the trademark. I think it was in 55. So this is how you can tie all these people together. Um, You know, I've been wanting to do this for a long time just to lay it all out for you and give you the whole picture. It's very, very hard to do. And for all of you out there, I highly recommend getting this book, General Walker and the Murder of President Kennedy. You won't regret it. It's chock full of information, just like what I read you. And this is, what I read you is a couple pages in this book. And it's a thousand page book. You know, it it ties things together like you would not believe. Okay. So here we have... We can pretty much prove that Jack Ruby was scared of these anti or these far right wing extremists in Dallas. That's why he begged Earl Warren to get him the hell out of Dallas into Washington. Okay, he could have easily been pressured by them or threatened that they better he better clean up the mess uh, that he made in Dallas. You know, and if you can make the leap that okay, Ruby Ruby's acting on on orders. He he got in people somehow either through. Carlos Marcelo, or Ferry or who knows because Jack Ruby had went to New Orleans uh, on business in the fall of 63 to return with Jada you know his his hot redhead dancer stripper Um, so whatever he did there we don't know for sure Um, but clearly you know, between California, Texas, Louisiana, and Florida. Okay, this this little southern arc here, you know, was rife with these extreme right-wingers who seriously wanted Kennedy dead. I mean, that's the bottom line, people. It doesn't get any easier to explain than that. And it wasn't just because he was soft on communism it was because he was um he wanted to integrate everything you know he and trust me these guys the kkk john burges these guys were anti uh what's the word i keep want to say segregation but integration they're very anti-integration okay they believed that the blacks should be with the blacks the whites should be with the whites and that's it and it doesn't need to change black people don't need to have rights this is what they thought back then And uh, so, yeah, I mean, stuff like this all day long in this book. So I highly recommend you go get this book because once you establish that, okay, once you've established that, all right, then you can start looking at people like Lauren Hall, Lawrence Howard, okay, and exactly who was in Dealey Plaza shooting or setting up Oswald, you know a, a what what was really going on, you know. Now, getting back to Guy Bannister for a second, okay. Um, you know this guy had connections, okay. Um, Bannister actually believed he was at the forefront of a battle against communism. He was delusional, okay. Um, he said he developed a, friend, a relationship with Bannister to learn what his perceptions of communism in the U.S., especially his 101.3 file, was on the Communist Party USA, a file which Bannister took from, from Chicago when he retired. Bannister reportedly told Campbell, communism is the a, is a philosophy of materialism, but having the force and effect of religion. He related that until about 1994. <clears throat> oh, Dan Campbell had the power of attorney over Delphine Roberts and her daughter, who became an invalid in later life. He stated that Leander Perez and Bluford Balter came by Bannister's office all the time. And he recalled that Kent Courtney came into Bannister's office quite a bit and that they were the best of friends. Ed Butler, who debated Oswald on the radio in September of 63, was very close with Bannister. Campbell stated that Bannister, Eberhard Deutsch, and Alton worked closely together and called them the Triumvirate. He said Leander Perez could be included with that group, he he affirmed that Klan leaders Jack Helm and Roswell Thompson were at the office. Now, Bannister, or I'm sorry, uh, Beckham. He also stated that uh, Roswell Thompson, or Roz, Rozzy as is, is it was called. You know, this guy was straight up racist. Okay, I mean, he was. I think he was running for governor or something, and he owned a restaurant and, and big sign on the door. You know, like no, no N words allowed and. You know, crazy stuff. Um, let's see. Alan Campbell told Garrison investigators he worked for Bannister at fifty-eight or fifty-nine, and again and again at sixty-two and sixty-three. He said he did everything for Bannister, which ranged from investigating to undercover work, trying to get information on communist groups in the city. Campbell told them that Bannister worked closely with the CIA and had a lot to do with the overthrow of the Arbenz in Guatemala in nineteen fifty-nine. Campbell was with Kerry Thornley, a former member of Oswald's Marine Union, on the night of the assassination, and Thornley told him that he had known Oswald in New Orleans in 1963. Thornley coldly remarked on the night of the assassination, it could not have happened to a nicer guy. Campbell told the investigators that he knew David Ferry and that when Ferry's picture was imprinted in the newspaper in connection with the Garrison investigation, Ferry told Campbell, I'm a dead man. Campbell related that he and his brother Dan were in the Bethlehem children's home At the same time, Oswald was there in 1946. Okay, I mean you can't make this stuff up. Okay, um, trying to find this other thing here. I apologize, but this stuff's all over the place. Um. The FBI interviewed Ricardo Richard Davis on July 17, 67, and he denied any association with the Minutemen, but he admitted that he did receive financial assistance from the John Birch Society. Davis told the FBI he met Lee Harvey Oswald on two occasions in connection with his anti-Castro activities. He encountered him when Oswald was pamphleting and when he went to Oswald's apartment with Carlos Carroga to obtain information regarding Oswald's pro-Castro campaign. As noted, Davis and Quiroga were both tied to the crusade to free Cuba in Banister's office uh, building that once had offices at 544 Camp Street. Davis told them that the training of the Cubans took place on the estate of De La Bear, who was closely associated with the John Birch Society. Davis had set up a training site for the Cubans in the, with the assistance of the John Birch Society. Occasionally, they would put on demonstrations for wealthy members of the JBS and solicit funding from them. Davis envisioned one day obtaining $1 million from the JBS to, it, to assist him in overthrowing Castro's government. Minuteman, Minuteman leader Robert Depew told the author that he was involved with procure, procuring armaments for the anti-Castro effort. Davis' claim that Oswald was a Minuteman is not surprising considering so many witnesses saw him coming and going from Bannister's office. Uh, furthermore, Bannister and his partner Hugh Ward were both Minutemen. Two prominent out-of-town members of the Minutemen were tied to Bannister's operation as well. A top aide to the leader of the Minutemen, Jerry Brooks, worked out of Bannister's office. Um, let's see here. In 1956, Guy Bannister and Hubert bedeau there's the name again, assisted Senator Eastland's New Orleans inquisitions on the so-called Soviet infiltration of the integration movement. <laughs> Okay, Um, now, here's how we tie it together, okay? From 55 to 56, Oswald belonged to Captain David Ferry's Civil Air Patrol. Ferry was a brilliant yet bizarre airline pilot uh, and fanatical anti-communist who often threw parties for and had sex with the teen cadets. Nonetheless, many of Ferry's cadets had an intense loyalty toward him. He was often described as mesmerizing. As part of the Civil Air Patrol, Ferry taught the cadets advanced aeronautics. Oswald had a passionate desire to follow in his brother Robert's footsteps and join the Marine Corps. Robert recalled his mother telling him about a man in uniform coming to her house and encouraging her to allow Lee to join the Marines. It is more likely that the man was David Ferry, the only person Oswald knew, who wore a military-style uniform. Oswald began to act like a communist in 1956. At the same time, paradoxically, that he was under the guidance of Ferry, who was a fanatical anti-communist. Around that time, when he was 16, he also lied about his age and tried, but failed, to join the Marines. Oswald yearned to join the Marines, who who ostensibly trained to fight the communists in the ongoing Cold War with the Soviet Union, which was also clearly contradictory and noteworthy for a supposed budding communist. In 1956, Oswald tried to join William Wolfe's astronomy club. He told Wolfe he admired communism and wanted to join a communist cell. It appears David Ferry had a hand in nurturing Oswald in this in this communist-posing escapade. Immediately after the assassination, Ferry contacted Wolfe to ask him about his recollections of Oswald. So, basically, you know, they're trying to say that you know, this is all some kind of, you know, a weird thing going on back then. You know, um, and you know we see how you can easily tie all these extreme right wingers, all these hate groups, um, to important places like Dallas, like California. Like Louisiana, New Orleans, and Florida. You have people with knowledge of the assassination. You have people offering money to have an assassination. You have people threatening to commit an assassination. Okay? You have, you have means, motive, opportunity. All the things that Oswald did not have. All the things that Oswald didn't have. And all these people are ignored. Ignored, they're all ignored. You know, the Warren Commission didn't go after the extreme right wingers. Um, they didn't call Drennan. They didn't call Brown. They didn't call Meltier. They didn't call any of these people to testify. Um, none of them. You know, and and it's just it's just insane to me. Garrison didn't go after him. Okay, the HSC didn't. The HSCA didn't go after them. Okay, you know these guys were still very influential in the seventies. You know the John Birch Society was still around. Uh, you know they they were still being very very vocal about things, um, still being very interested in the politics of the time. Still very influential, <coughs> influential and powerful. <coughs> now somebody that I mentioned earlier, this Colonel Robert Brown, he he went on to found. The magazine Soldier of Fortune, okay, um, and a lot of these guys, these extreme right wingers and 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 you know people that from all these hate groups, went on to have kind of important positions in in Reagan's administration, and at the end of Reagan's term, he pardoned a lot of these guys um, for their crimes and and let them out of jail, you know people. Quoted as saying they wouldn't rest until all the N-words, all the gays, all the, you know, were, were gone from this world. And, you know, the power since then, I guess, has faded. Um, and, of course, today the John Birch Society claims to be this righteous, righteous deal. Um, and they, it's funny because they actually post some myths uh, about the John Birch Society on their website. <laughs> and one of their myths is the John Birch Society played a role in the assassination of President Kennedy. And they say this is the fact is this is perhaps the most despicable myth of all. The truth is that the John Birch Society has always lived by the age-old adage that foul means can never be employed to accomplish a goal no matter how important that goal. While JBS and its members called attention to the many dangerous and unconstitutional acts and programs promoted by President Kennedy, it has always been the society's position that anything harmful to our country emanating from the White House should be countered by congressional or judicial action urged upon our nation's leaders by concerned American citizens. Immediately after the assassination, founder Robert Welch canceled the Forgotten Country rally that thousands had committed to attend in Boston the following day. He then sent a telegram of condolences to Mrs. Kennedy. In that brief message, published by the Boston Globe on November 23, 1963, Robert Welch stated, On behalf of the Council of the John Birch Society and myself, I wish to express our deep sorrow at the untimely loss to our nation of its youngest elected president and to convey more particularly to you and all members of President Kennedy's family our sincere and heartfelt sympathy in your overwhelming loss. That uh, <coughs> is the official story if you go to the John Birch Society website right now. Um, you know, they, they have a lot of them on here, believe me. Believe me. And, uh, you know, you can't, you just can't get away from these guys. So, when looking at the assassination of John F. Kennedy. It's easy to put it on the CIA. It's easy to put it on the mafia. You know, but why not the extreme right wingers too? You know, I mean, the CIA, for Christ's sake, couldn't even kill Fidel Castro. Okay, 60 miles off our shore. Couldn't kill him. Now, granted, all these anti Castro Cubans and and these Cuban raiders couldn't get to him either okay but uh, you know how is it that the CIA who can't even you know kill Fidel Castro with exploding cigars and and poison lip balm or diving suits or whatever but they can orchestrate this massive massive assassination of President Kennedy and cover up you know I don't see it certainly the CIA had, had motive Certainly they did. But uh, a lot of people had motive. Okay? And when it comes to having financial backing to get this done, to make sure that things are taken care of, to make sure you can get people that can pull that trigger at that very, very time it needs to be pulled and keep their damn mouth shut about it afterwards. Costs a lot of money, and when you're talking about societies like this, the John Birch Society, the National States Rights Party, and all these other guys, you know, like you heard at the beginning of the show, they would have meetings and set up funds that that these guys would donate to to get things done. You know, so it's just it's not out of the realm of possibility. You know, and when you have somebody as powerful as General Walker, don't forget that General Walker was running for president, or he did run for president in 1964. Okay? That's also another motive. I mean, could you really run against John F. Kennedy and hope to win? When he's bidding for re-election? Probably not. But take him out? you got a got a a, a lot better chance. You know? I'm just saying. You know, I'm not saying that was the motive, but I'm just saying. You know. And people all the time forget about the sentiment of the time. The Red Scare. Anti-communism. Vicious battles for civil rights between segregationists and integrationists. And, yeah. I mean, it's just, it was powerful. And, People were scared to point the finger at these extreme right-wingers. Most definitely. But, uh, so, everybody go check out the book by Jeffrey Caulfield. I did, as soon as I found out about the book, I sent him an email, offered him to come on the show. I haven't heard back. So, I figured I'm not going to wait to talk about it. You know, the book's out. You don't have to wait until September 29th. The book is out um, right now. You can get it now. Um, and I encourage everybody to go get it. So I'm giving you, Dr. Jeffrey Caulfield, a free plug um, in exchange for reading a couple pages here just to get people's interest peaked. You know, I, for the life of me, I don't understand why somebody who writes a JFK assassination book wouldn't want to do, you know, free press for it to generate some interest. For people to buy your book. But I'll do it for you. But only because I think you got it right. Sir. I wouldn't do this just for any book. Um, So maybe sending an email directly to him. Maybe not getting the job done. I might find out who, who uh, publishes the book. And try to get in contact with the publisher or agent. Because I'd really like to talk to this guy. Um, I know Doug's trying to reach out to him too. Hadn't heard nothing back. So... You know, there's that. So if this message gets to you, Dr. Jeffrey Caulfield, uh, you have an open invitation, sir, to come on the show and talk about your great book. Okay? And I'll help you sell copies of it because believe me, I'm telling you people, this seems to be the definitive masterwork. Okay? For the theory... That General Walker and, and elements of the extreme right wing were involved in the Kennedy assassination point blank. Okay, and, and Doug's talked about it on his show all the other incriminating things that General Walker said over the years, the letters he's written, the implications he's made. Um, it's all there, you know, and it, and it all matches up, you know, with people that are involved that we've known have been involved forever, you know, like Bannister and Ferry in New Orleans, G. Ray Gill. You know, and which makes Thomas Beckham's story match up, uh, which ties you to the shooters, Lauren Hall and Lawrence Howard, which we know we're in Dallas, and you know we're trained killers. Um, it just all makes sense and ties together. It's people Jack Ruby was afraid of in Dallas. He wasn't afraid of Lyndon Johnson. Okay, he wasn't afraid of Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson couldn't do shit to him. Okay, he was afraid of the John Birch Society and these extreme right wingers who did not mess around. Okay. They didn't mess around. And it, it ties back into my theory is uh, okay, if Ruby is involved in this thing, um you know, why not Larry Crayford? You know, he recruits somebody as a, as a Oswald lookalike to do this and to do to do that and help set him up. You know, and when, and when when Crawford leaves, that Saturday morning, that kind of left him in the lurch. He got to clean up his own mess now. Okay? Because I'm sure Craver was like, dude, I'm done. Okay? I'm done. You know, I had to kill a freaking cop. I'm done. And, uh, which left Jack Ruby in the lurch to clean up his own mess. Um, so, there you have it. Everybody always asks me, you know, what's your theory? What's your theory? What's your theory? And it, it's, it's hard for me to lay it all out in a cohesive an understandable way, um, but I hope this helps. Okay, because you know I've been looking at this assassination for twenty five years, and you get you know you start thinking you know you have your different theories, and then you read something, and something else takes over that theory, and you have to add to it, take away from it, figure what makes sense, what doesn't, and slowly morph your your best guess really about what happened. Because at the time, none of this stuff was followed up on. And it's kind of hard to do that 50 years later after everybody's dead. And, you know, I'm sure they didn't write anything down or keep records. And this, that, and the other. So we're left to speculate. But this book makes it a hell of a lot easier because it ties a lot of these guys together. I mean, we can, we can you know, tie Miltier to Bannister. We can tie Bannister to Walker, we can tie, you know, all these freaking extreme right wingers, anti-communist, anti-segregationists. We can tie them all together, okay? Stanley Drennan on the West Coast, you know. We know, we all know the story of, of Lauren Hall picking up Jerry Patrick Heming's rifle, okay, from from Detective Hathcock in Los Angeles, and then the next day, somebody they showing up there looking for Roy Payne because his his fingerprints were found on a gun. In Dallas, the day before, which was the day of the assassination. So, do the math, people. Um, Don't ignore what I'm trying to tell you. You need to pay attention and follow every lead down every dark rabbit hole. But I'm telling you to get this book. Because it will open your eyes to the truth. And it will help you see things that you haven't seen before. Make connections that you haven't made before. And... it lays it all out right there for you. I mean, you can tie Oswald to Ferry, Ferry to, to Gill. You know, Eugene Hale Brading had an office in the same building as G. Ray Gill. You know, and Brading came from California. And he was part of extreme right-wing, right-wing groups there. So, I mean, you can tie all these people together. I don't know what the hell he was doing there, but he was there. You know, from what it appears to be, Miltier was in De La Plaza. How would he have known? How did he know, you know... <laughs> two weeks before the assassination, that the president would be shot from a... from a... Uh, <clears throat> you know, a tall office building. And that somebody would be picked up within hours of the assassination to throw suspicion off on the real people that did it. You know, you just don't pull that shit out of thin air. Okay? It's stuff you know. And you don't know unless you know. You know? So, with that being said... that being said... Go get the book. I know it's expensive. Trust me. It's worth every friggin' penny. Worth every penny, people. Every penny. (sighs) That felt good to get off my chest. Most definitely. And a lot of feedback from the last episode with James K. Lambert. People didn't like it. Sorry. It is what it is. You know, I'm going to have Lone Nutters on the show. You know, if people think it's a waste of time, then I'm sorry. Don't listen. That's all I can tell you. Um, You know, they intrigue me. I I want to see how they think. I want to try to change their mind. But, you know, they also make me think about things. And so hopefully, you know, it's a win-win situation for everybody. Uh, You know, at least I have him on. You can hear straight from his mouth what he thinks, whether or not you should go watch his movie, and, you know, I gave him a platform here on this show, almost two hours, to explain himself, and, and you know, all this stuff. You know, I listened to an interview he did with some other random dude named Autry in, in Texas on some, I don't know what, some financial radio show you know, and the, the guy was cutting him off every 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 ten seconds. Uh, you know, I think he had two commercial breaks in uh, like twenty minutes. You know, and he he was talking having conversations with people on air that 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 James couldn't hear, and then he started questioning him about his 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 choice of taking his wife's name over keeping his own and and and, and changing his name from Kenneth James to James Kent just dumb stuff you know at least i hope he recognizes the kind of platform that he got here on this show where he got a fair shake to state his claim to take as long as he needed to explain himself and not be Belittled by some financial advisor who doesn't know jack shit about the Kennedy assassination. So keep that in mind. You know, I put people, I put guys like like that on here for you to make up your own mind about them. Okay, I can challenge them so far. I'm not having people on the show just to just to have a yelling and pissing match with them. That's just not what I'm doing. You know, if that's what you want, go watch the UFC or something. I don't know what to tell you. You know, I'm interested in having a conversation, and if we can't have a conversation, then I'll set I'll let you go. I'll let you go. But we were able to have a conversation, and we had it out. You know, it's one of my most fastest, most listened to shows, actually. So people are listening, even though they hate the hell out of it, which is always a good thing. And people, please do me a huge, huge favor if you could. I would greatly appreciate it. If you listen to this show via iTunes, could you please leave me a favorable review on there? That would be great. Um, that would help me immensely. And if you listen via Spreaker or Stitcher, give me a thumbs up or or, or give me a like. Hit that heart button uh, if you like what I'm doing for you. You know, or you can you can head over and and to tlgpodcast.com to donate to the show. You know, I'm seriously starting to think about uh advertising on this show. So I really don't want to go the corporate route, but I will if I have to. Um you know, this show I, I, I had no idea a year and a half later I'd be 80 shows in and still doing this. But I am and so if anyone out there has a book or owns a business who would be interested in possibly advertising on the Lone Gumman Podcast send me an email thelonegummanpodcast at gmail.com and we can have a conversation trust me I'm, I'm, I got very cheap rates um, but it's time to start getting something back from doing this because it's starting to take a lot of my time and my time is valuable I have two jobs, two kids and a bitchy wife and it's hard when you need to coordinate interviews uh, research read um, and plan all this stuff to have these great shows for you guys to listen to and enjoy and all I get is grief you know, grief about who I have on the show, grief about how the show sounds, which by the way, I think the quality of, of how the show sounds has gone up dramatically. I'd say in the past six six to eight months. Um, and I'm sorry if there continues to be problems with how it is, it's just how it is. Okay, you know, technically speaking, you know, this is not a radio show. I'm not sitting in a radio studio, okay? I don't have thousands of dollars of computers and electronic equipment, okay? This is me, one man show. I got no producer, no editor, no writers, no technical guys. I got none of that. It's just me. And I'm trying my best for you. So please, this is a podcast, people. I'm sorry if it doesn't sound like an FM radio show, okay? But it's not going to. It probably never will. That's why this is a podcast, okay? A computer-based deal. Until technology advances to where, you know, when you're recording on Skype, where it sounds really, really good, um, and all that's possible and you know file sizes aren't a problem to upload this is how it's gonna be you know i don't think it sounds that bad uh i think my guests have been sounding okay i even i have a show that i did with with francesca that i can't put out because it sounds like doo-doo every i don't know every time she talked there was some kind of washy background noise that i could not get rid of to save my life um so I just didn't put that show out we're just going to redo it uh, sometime in the future about the pains so stay tuned for that it's going to be coming hopefully soon um, and you know I'm trying so like I said if anybody's interested in donating head over to TLGpodcast.com or if you own a business or you have a book uh, you'd like to advertise on here you know I give a lot of free pub by having You know, authors on, talking about books on here, you know. um, And if you want the quality of the show to increase, then I need help from the listeners to share the show. If you like it, just share a link. I post links in 30 friggin' Facebook groups dedicated to the JFK assassination every week. Okay? Okay? And in some of these groups, there's thousands of people. You know, it's not hard to hit that share button. If you like what you're listening to, okay, help a brother out. You might turn somebody else on to the show. And as the show grows, the quality will grow. Because I will be able to do more with more listeners. You know, when I can take the advertisers and be like, look. Look how many people i got listening to my show. Okay? This is what I'm going to charge you for an ad. Alright, now now Rob can go down to to, uh, to Best Buy and, and get a nice new computer. Get a nice new mixer and microphone so this thing sounds tight. You know, this is how it's gonna work. You know, I, I tried I tried to tell myself for the longest time that oh I never have ads. I hate listening to freaking podcasts with ads and loaded it onto it, but look, the model works. People listen. Um, You know, unfortunately, the trend right now is a 30-minute show with ads at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end. And I'm talking one or two minutes at the beginning, one or two minutes in the middle, and one or two minutes at the end of a 30-minute podcast. Scripted podcast, mind you. Okay, that's the model right now. That's the mo- that's the money making model. Okay, I don't sit down and script this. I don't have time for that shit. Okay? I say I say what's on my brain, I go off the cuff. This is how it is. And I take as long as I need to take. Okay? So That's the plan. And I'm telling you because I'm honest like that and I'm just letting you know. You know, I, I don't want it to be from corporate ads. You know, where you get on here and you hear an ad for, you know, AT and T or Ford or uh, Squarespace or whatever. You know, I'm not downgrading those companies or anything like that. But if you are a podcast listener like I am, and you listen to these podcasts, you hear the same ads on all these shows because you have these big mega Podcasting advertising agencies like Midroll, Archer Avenue. And that's what they do. They cater to companies who want to advertise on podcasts. And they try to match up those advertisers with podcasts who they think would have the audience that would buy their product. So, you know, and I'd like to help out members of our community, people that listen to the show, uh, give something back so please if you're interested send me an email thelonegummanpodcast at gmail.com it's not hard to remember and make sure you head over to the website check out all my friends links people that I think are doing good work on the assassination and research and resources they're all right there on my website on the right hand side they're big blue buttons boom 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 you can find it all there um In the meantime, you know, just please get this book. You won't regret it. I don't care, you know, if you think LBJ did it and all this nonsense. Go buy this book. If you believe Judith Very Baker and her horse shit, go buy the book. Because it's going to change your mind. It's going to change it. Because you're going to see connections that you've never seen before made. And you'll be like, oh my God, that guy knows that guy. And then that that guy knows that guy. And you know, oh yeah, yeah. And then, trust me, the picture will start making a hell of a lot more sense to you. You want to understand the Kennedy assassination? Go buy this book. I can't say it any clearer than that. I am stepping up and whoring this thing out like a pimp. Go buy this book: General Walker and the Murderer of President Kennedy. You won't regret it. I'll put a link up on the website to Amazon where you can go buy it go buy it buy two give one to a friend and like I said please leave me a favorable review on iTunes or hit the like button um, this only adds to my exposure you know if I can get on the new and noticeables or whatever it is on iTunes which I don't even know what the hell it is because I don't have I, I, Apple products or whatever they're called um, but it means potentially thousands of new listeners. And trust me, I don't even have a thousand right now. So, anything can help. You know, like... There's podcasts out there right now with with millions of downloads every week. And I know I brought it up before, but I'm going to bring it up again. There's a podcast called Serial. It was from 2014. Millions and millions and millions of downloads. And it changed the way... The podcast are structured, how they're sold and advertised, and it was all about the murder of one girl in Baltimore, and how supposedly the wrong man has been in prison ever since. Now that podcast was only twelve episodes long, and most of it scripted from beginning to end. You know, we sit down and you read it out. Or you write it out and then you read it back. But they did it well. And it tells an intriguing story. You know, one that most people hadn't heard of before. You know, and if millions of people care about this one little, tiny little case like this, then really means nothing to anybody except the guy sitting in jail and maybe the dead girl's family. Um why can't millions of people around the world be interested in the Kennedy assassination and the many intricacies surrounding the conspiracy to kill the president in an effort to find the truth and solve the mystery why can't that be I just don't get it I just don't get it but hopefully we can get there with your help people with your help alright right. the some bitches in the can beamed up the satellite, down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy, Rob Clark, on the Lone Gunman Podcast.
0: The Lone Gunman.
3: Mm-hmm. Come on, come on, come on! Mm-hmm. 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 Here we go. go. My name Bishop Bulwarker from the First Church. Nothing but the truth. Deacon Kyle, Deacon George, Deacon Clay, open the door, let them in, turn him loose. First, I wanna thank God for the blood running warm in my veins. That's all right, thank God for my life, health, and strength. I got a sound mind, I'm not insane. Come on, come on, I ain't gonna preach too long, I ain't gonna take the service too far. My sermon this morning, hell to the no, no, no. Come on, come on, come on, hell no. To the no, 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 hell to the no, hell to the no, to the no, 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 listen. Sister Elder, sister roof, y'all us just make sure that everybody get a seat. Sister Lily may go in the kitchen, cause when it gets through, I need to eat. Come on, fix me collard greens and bread and rice. Chicken breasts, oxtails on the side. That's all right. And Deacon Frank, get my dog truck ready, cause when it get through, I need to ride. And Deacon Big Rob, count the money, count the money, come back, tell me what you raise. I got on, some people, they looking for some blessings, but now God got to get the praise. Woo! There's an old saying, when the praises go up, you get the blessing coming down. Yeah! I got some people in the church and huh? they steal, they steal, they messing around. Hell no, to the no 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 Hell to the no Hell to the no To the no 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 Living I got people in the church today hugging you, they claim that they love you today. They'll do that But time to get home, they on the telephone talking about they can't stand your breath Yeah, I got people in the church smoking weed, drinking whiskey, drinking vodka, lot of gin What you say? I got to preach Wednesday night prayer talking about can I get an amen Talk to em. Every Sunday morning, about a quarter, about a half past ten. Come on. I got some packages, got some bull daggers. I got some hoes and doe badges, they coming in. That's right, that's right. And now they're laying at the altar, and they confess the sin, they're sin, yeah. Come on, bitch. The time is still Monday morning, doing the same thing again. Come on. Hell no, till the no, no, no. Hell to the no, hell to the no. To the no, 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 listen. I got kids dropping out of school, talking about they don't wanna learn. <laughs> but they're standing on the corner, rolling blunts, talking about come on and burn. They'll do that. I got kids walking up and down the street, pants hanging down by the knees. Look at them, look, look at, at them, them. I'm about that they're looking for a job. When I see them, I say, did the book, please. That's what they need to see. all they ever talk about, brag about who got the biggest and the baddest gun. (laughs) Time to see the copper with the bubble top. And they drop the clock, they wanna run. Yeah, and now the chef got 'em locked up. And got 'em sitting in the county jail. What now? Heard the mama, she was crying all night, cause she can't get money for the bill. Now the man with the homeboys Cause they didn't put no money in the commissary <laughs> Yeah, yeah and Be glad you're in the jail, brother, man Cause you were sure headed for the cemetery That's a fight There's an old saying That a hard head make a soft behind Yeah, yeah Well, since you did the crime Don't do the time Stop the baby crying yeah. Hell no Till the no, no, no Hell till the no Hell till the now to the no 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 hey oh, no no to the no no hell to the no no to the